When you guys announced the, you know, the date, November, is that early November, late November? Uh, we haven't given the exact date in November. It'll be in November. Again, there's 21 countries we'll be rolling out, so they won't necessarily all be the exact same day. And you announced that price of $4.99, yeah, whether it's dollars and, or euros. And, 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 and when and you announced that price, the room was kind of quiet for a minute. That's a, yeah. that's a big number. Why is it so expensive? Well, it's, it's a lower number than some of the analysts had forecasted. Uh, we're over-delivering value. Uh, against uh, other choices I think consumers uh, can get such as and well just any any modern product these days you look at it 499 isn't isn't a um, uh, ridiculous price point we're delivering you know thousands of dollars of value to people so I think they're gonna love it when they use it when you look at this fitting into what's going on with Microsoft and the changing world of computing where does the Xbox sit you talk about being future-proof yeah. Sure. Services in I mean, the future look, of Microsoft. Devices and services. That's that's the world that we're living in. Is uh, you've got to have a great set of capabilities in your device, and the more services that get to global scale, uh, things like Skype, uh, as an example, the more valuable they come uh, become for consumers around the globe. So those principles are what we've designed into Xbox One. If you've got to pick one thing when a, when a consumer is looking at this device, because I'm trying to imagine how big the business is, they look at your price point, they look at a lower price point somewhere else, what's the one sort of differentiator that you think the consumer is going to go with your device and therefore you'll grow a bigger business? Um, over the past eight years on Xbox 360, we've uh, improved live, uh, we've improved all parts of, of our program. And on Xbox One, we're going to continue that tradition. So there'll be new services. We showed, for instance, today Twitch TV. Uh, that's, yeah, that that's, got, people were, were yeah. just going I mean, crazy. People, people that. love that. I mean, you're playing a game, someone's commenting on the game, you're seeing the strategy, the way that you play, and millions of people around the globe, that's their form of entertainment. They want to see how Corey plays, compare it against what they do, take away new ideas. So that's the kind of innovation. It's one small example uh, Skype with communication, the ability to have all of your touch devices interact with Xbox One. That's never been done before. We're really making the living room your center of fun for your family. And you're going to be able to do things with smart glass, with the controller, with the Kinect sensor that I think are just going to feel magical. Starting with just something super simple, Xbox On. Like who hasn't wanted to, to sort of fire up just your yell at your yeah, computer yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, let me ask you just two more things. Uh, there's this new concern about privacy, I think, after last week, and Microsoft, strangely, in the middle of it. I've never been a big privacy guy, but I wonder when you think about your business, are you at all concerned that consumers will steer away or be more concerned about sharing information when they're thinking about who's looking at it? No, we, we, we've got a great set of privacy uh, policies people can read and review. We put you at the center of controlling your data, how it gets used. It's known. Uh, the company's up front so about you're, it. You're mindful yeah, of it, at least. We're, we're, we're mindful of it, and it's nothing that would make me personally uncomfortable uh, with, uh, with what's going on. So that's, that's a simple test. What's up, guys, and welcome to Gaming History 101, the Retro Video Games podcast. I am one of your hosts. My name is Fred Rojas, and I am flying solo today. Um, I talked to Trees, and he, uh, he's he been out for a little bit. He's been doing some stuff for the summertime, but he hopes to come back next week, and, and we should hit the ground running. Um, also, uh, I had a couple offers with, with some people. I definitely want to get Jake McClenahan on. Got a couple other people who want to do some, some retro stuff. Um, 42 Level 1 guys. I'm thinking about doing a Sonic podcast with them. So we got a lot going on going into 
into the summer, but uh, but this week we're going to go solo. And so I figured, um, you know, that obviously means one one big thing, which is that this is pre-recorded. So <laughs> bear with me, chatters. But you guys always usually have some uh, some really good comments to to make to each other. So um, you know, uh, hopefully this won't uh, deter things too much. But uh, I was you know just on knuckleballer uh, right before this, and uh, and I, I I need a little bit <laughs> of a refresh time. We had a very long weekend with the baby and uh, and a wedding. So uh, anyway, um, so this is coming pre-recording. And so I figured I'd start something uh, a little interesting. I'm going to test this out. I'm going to see what you guys think. And maybe we can do episodes like this in the near future. Nothing consistent, nothing sporadic, but definitely ones with hosts and uh, guest hosts and stuff like that where we can have um, some interesting debates and stuff. And and the idea that this is is, is calling uh, – I, I, I wanted to call it Gaming History X – um, this is not a unique idea. Uh, American History X was probably the one who coined this phrase the most, or at least the one that I know the most, um, when uh, they, they did it to talk about current events. And obviously, American History X discusses, at the time, some very current and, and important issues uh, that I would say are still around today. And so in that same vein, um, I wanted to kind of sit down and talk about um, Microsoft and uh, the whole E3 debacle and, and kind of what's gone on, um, because I think it's really important that uh, that people realize, you know, I've been talking about it a little bit and... Uh, and you know, I mean, at first, you know, there was all the uh, the controversy surrounding Microsoft and and uh, how their console really just didn't didn't take um, quite a uh, and uh, you know didn't quite catch on as much as I, I think they would have hoped. I think we all kind of went into this generation thinking that there was a good chance Microsoft would hit the ground running and and literally walk away with this generation early on. Now, granted, that's all marketing mumbo jumbo because in reality, both Microsoft, Sony, and Nintendo, even if you don't believe that, um, you know, kind of make money, you know, <laughs> and do quite well at it uh, with these console generations. Um, but I think, you know, and I've talked to some people about it, and I've, I've said definitely a ton on Twitter, as I'm sure you guys are aware, um, to the fact that, you know, I think one of the largest parts with Microsoft is its messaging. And so um, in true form, I figured I would do this this uh, Gaming History X, um, you know, kind of about... Uh, you know where Microsoft is right now, um, because their console in and of itself, and especially their game library that accompanies it, has no inherent problems. There are some concerns. There are things like that. There are some risks that are being taken. But I would argue that um, console manufacturers have been doing this time and time again. Um, I think the the one variable that nobody is counting on is that we just don't know how this is all going to play out. Right? Like last generation uh, did have the capabilities of online this quote unquote concept of the cloud where you could offload workloads and or um, storage online and utilize it later. Um, but I don't truly believe that uh, any of this stuff uh, was really planned for. You know, everyone kind of tossed it in the box. Everything was ready for HD. Everything was ready, you know, for online. Sony, in their case, but they made the technology, set everything up for Blu-ray. Um, but we didn't really know what would take, you know. And uh, obviously online is the thing that, that took it and ran with it. And since Microsoft had already been delving with it, they they managed to to go a little farther with it and so um you know i again the the console this whole idea that the discs are just vehicles for the program the console the the concept that you can bounce back and forth that uh, everybody shares your account is kind of as in uh, as as nebulous as as any other account on say steam or something like that um was a very interesting concept and um this whole idea of offloading workloads to the cloud utilizing it for for ai or again i there's been lots of debate as to whether or not you should re really use the term the cloud so i'll say remote computer Computers. Um, 
you know, all this stuff was was kind of planned, you know, and, and I know it's it's really jarring at first, um, but many would argue that the same was said for the Xbox 360 when it launched with uh, HD and most of its games were catered to HD. At this point, you know, HD is a given. I, I don't think there are many gamers out there. I'm sure there are, but there aren't many of them that are using SD still with these consoles. And so, um, you know, as they usher in you know, these new concepts and kind of tailor-make stuff, um, Microsoft had to be aggressive about its its campaign. And um, I really think the messaging was the biggest flaw and not, um, and, and not what the console is, its price point or anything like that. Um, sure, it'll fluctuate things from start to finish. Let's face it, $600 for the PS3 is exactly why many people didn't adopt it at first. Um, and then it didn't really have a game library or anything like that uh, at the onset to justify that purchase over uh, the Xbox 360. Now, the prices are a little closer this time, but that still doesn't change the fact that $100 is $100. And, and say what you will, that's a lot of money. It doesn't mean that gamers can't come up with it. It just means that we don't want to have to. Um, and so you hope that Microsoft's me messaging could do a better job of uh, convincing you as to why. Because I can very easily, easily, and many podcasts I listened to this week did the same thing, you know, with very limited PR training, and uh, I have a formal degree in strategic communications, which is PR, advertising, execs, stuff like that. And it's it's at its base, it's a journalism degree. But with anybody with this kind of education or this kind of background, or even people who have been doing press releases for a while, you can message this stuff very well. And it's not just bullshit. It's not just out in the out in the open, you know, nondescript mumbo-jumbo that, that everyone rolls their eyes at. It's stuff that gamers truly believe. You know, I've talked to people before, and I'm like, you know, if Microsoft just came out on stage and, you know, just, you know, envisioned this world, created this world, if you will. Um, you know, I, I was thinking, like, maybe one of the best ways, and I promise I'll get to, you know, what this is really about, but this is all kind of just like a discussionary flow of thoughts, so bear with me, guys. But, like, imagine a presser where Microsoft came out and they were like, you know, um, you know, Don Matrick, first of all, let's say he doesn't act so cocky. Let's say they all seem kind of conversational with us because let's face it, the price, uh, the, the look, the clothes and the, the, the pay scales of Don Matrick and Jack Tretton are not very you know, diverse. They're they're rel relatively parallel individuals. It just depends on the the amount of you know what they bring with them. And Microsoft chose an approach which has always failed them of you know kind of acting like Apple, like this this holier than thou. Of course, you want our stuff, this and that. But even Apple, I would say, had better messaging than say Don has uh, you know used in the last couple of weeks in regards to the Xbox One. And uh, Jack, on the other hand, is very humble because, let's face it, his console had a very rough start. It has come back, and that's why nobody can decide what the hell these consoles are going to do five, six, seven, eight years from now. Nobody knew how this was all going to play out. And now that we do, great, but there's been no precedence for it. You can't judge. They didn't know that online was going to be as important as it became. And now that they do know, who knows? Maybe online won't be that important. You know, it, it, it just depends. It all changes and and by the end of this episode i you know just to go back to our roots um i will be talking about a couple of consoles that did fail right out of the gate and or that uh that didn't really have the strength uh because the developer the manufacturer had this really great foresight um to what they wanted to do for the future but unfortunately uh market didn't didn't stand on end with it you know and actually, that brings up an idea that, that I just wanted to throw out, which is that whole concept that, you know, in today's game space, it's kind of weird that Microsoft was trying to sell the mass market, the typical consumer who is not a hardcore gamer, 
on this box, but at the same time, they're trying to move everything to digital. You know, it's like, does the hard, anyone but the hardcore gamer not want a disc anymore? DVD is still a massive format, even though there are digital and streaming ways of doing it. But the typical consumer doesn't think of their Amazon Instant Video library as the same thing as their DVD collection on a bookshelf. You know, I mean, it, it's just not part of that mentality. And so, um, and people simply say, well, why don't they try to do both? Well, the problem with doing both, and we'll see this time and time again over history, is that if you don't mandate it, you can't develop for it. That was the problem with the Connect this time around. That's why they decided to make it in the box, even at the detriment of the price, was because if you cannot promise developers they're there, they are not going to segregate their market or their audience um, by developing for the Connect, unless they know it's there, unless they know that every single person who turns on that console has one attached. And that's why that mandate comes. Not because Microsoft wants to be dicks or make us spend more money. It's because they'll never get anyone to try it if they don't force it. You know, and, and I mean, that, that doesn't mean that you have to buy into it. That doesn't mean that you have to be okay with it. I mean, at the end of the day, these, these are consumer products. You simply vote with your wallet. Um, but, you know, to a certain extent, I think, you know, they were right. And, and, and one of the few times where they didn't, you know, show this massive amount of hubris over the 360 is the idea that very much so from both pre-orders before and after the Sony press conference that all remained strong. There were definitely Microsoft faithfuls and people who were very impressed by the box that were like, no, you know what, despite all these things that I've heard, all the news articles and all the bullshit that, that hit the net about how stupid you would be if you decided to pick up an Xbox One, they were like, no, I'm going to stick with this. And um, I think the only time they really stumble is when they try to justify it. You don't need to justify it. It's your $500. If you want the console, buy the console and be proud of what you bought. You will not be disappointed, I'm sure. Um, but it's when we get into these more mass broad scales as to you know whether or not this is you know what's good and what's not. And again, this this whole you know this whole flip of Microsoft to kind of conform to and go back to what Sony's doing, um, you know, harms a lot of what they're trying to do with these with these cloud computers and these these remote computers and integration and stuff like that. Because now that these developers don't know it's going you know can't promise that it's going to happen, since you don't know that every person who gets on your console was, you know, gonna have a box that's attached to the internet, you can't offload some of that workload because the game won't function if it doesn't have online ability. And so I think that's to the detriment of Microsoft. And I, I don't know. It's probably... There's no way to tell. We have no idea what the pre-order numbers were, although I'm sure Microsoft had a good idea. And uh, there's no way to tell how dangerous this would be. But they are skating this line where if, you know, ask the Wii U what happens when third party just really doesn't get behind your console and you try to hold it alone. Especially if you don't have as many good ideas as you did last time, which we're definitely seeing demonstrated with the Wii U. The Wii U may still have a lot of life left, but... Um, it is out on its own. It does not technically impress, um, but it, it can with game design. But that's kind of on Nintendo now, right? Because third parties will do loose ports, and that's about all we've seen. And they don't seem to really be on board with a whole lot. You see developers such as Platinum. Let's face it, Sega's been on the fence with Platinum left and right because while their games are very good and innovative, they're one of my favorite developers of last generation. Um, it's weird to be calling it last generation because I guess technically we haven't even ushered in the new one. But of this generation then... Um, you know, they, they, they weren't really big financial sellers uh, to a large extent. Um, I don't know the exact numbers, but I would argue that maybe Metal Gear Rising, which is leaning off of a license, was probably their best performing uh, uh, title in terms of money. And so Nintendo's really just leaning on them and taking this developer that uh, really didn't show a lot of... Uh, 
you know, a lot of uh, financial praise, although they did show a lot of unique um, ideas and, and very diverse concepts of games across this generation and ushering it into the Wii U to kind of give them an outlet. And, and if nothing else, it can definitely say that there's creativity in some of the Wii U games, especially the platinum developed ones like the one, wonderful 101 and uh, Bayonetta 2 looks to be very much in the same vein of the original, which, which a lot of people like. It's kind of a return to Devil May Cry uh, as opposed to what we've seen uh, with the Devil May Cry series moving forward. Um, but since I'm all over the place, uh, let me just go back and do a little experiment here. Imagine if Microsoft came out on stage and Don Matrick looks, you know, this is, this is the presser. This is the E3 presser. And he goes, you know, ladies and gentlemen, good morning. Um, la- back in May, you saw us do a, a performance that I understand many of you in this audience weren't very pleased with. Um, this was a, a broad scale concept where we introduced our new Xbox One, which we feel is an extremely important and forward-moving device that not only looks good but functions well and is tailor-made for the household of any American. But today is not about any American. Today is about you. And so I promise you in this press conference today, it is all about games. This is the one thing we know you've been asking for, and this is the one thing we promise to deliver. In this press conference, you will hear no message, no note, TV. While the TV may be part of the presentation in term only, and it may be something that comes out of someone's mouth because it's traditionally what we hook our boxes up to, or sorry, let me take that back because I'm, 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 I didn't write this out, but anyway, that we hook our, our Xboxes up to, um, it's, it's not going to be a focus at all in this press conference. In that same regard, neither will Snap, neither will the internet, neither will any of those things. Save for games, the Xbox One will be the only thing we talk about at this press conference. Additionally, after we announced the Xbox One, you had many questions, and you've heard many answers, but you've had nothing truly concrete and official. Well, I don't think this main stage is the greatest place to do it. Immediately following this, we will be scheduling any of the major outlets to come talk to us and get one uniform answer to any of your pressing questions. We think it's important that you enter this generation with confidence. And the Xbox One delivers an incredible amount of value and the future of video gaming. And we want to make sure that you don't have any questions when you decide to purchase it this November. And there you go. You can even reveal it or you can hold off the reveal date. Then you go into the games. What might even be even cooler is you just kind of streamline the games just one after another. You know, don't show off a bunch of this functionality and this, this you know, highbrow concept stuff. Just hit them with the games. You know, and, and, and as you're going along, you know, uh, and, then, and then obviously there's the, the backlash afterwards, right? Um, so you come out and, and when you're announcing the price, you're like, um, you've seen today that the Xbox One is going to deliver many impressive games. It should be noted that almost everything you saw in today's press conference will only be available on the Xbox One. And even some of the games that will be appearing on PC or are some of our competitors. Xbox One will deliver 300,000 remote servers. Three dedicated servers per console for all of you. Which will increase functionality and allow any game that comes out on our console to be optimized specifically for the end user of the Xbox One. This is something that at this point, none of our competitors, including the PC, has been able to demonstrate. And while it may be a possibility, we feel confident that you will see it first and best on the Xbox One. 
Additionally, most of these games, as I said, are exclusive. So you'll only be able to get them at the Xbox One. And all of this value and all of these things we've done remotely, in addition to the extraordinary amount of hardware, which would cost you probably over $1,000 to assemble on your own in a PC that does not have any of the optimization off-site, is coming to you at the great value of $499.99 this holiday season. Now, I'm not going to sit here and placate you. $500 is a lot of money. Probably more than some of you thought we were going to price this console at. But I think when you see what the Xbox One is capable of, and in the next five months, we will be showing you just that, and you start to see how the games are diverse on the Xbox One, in addition to their versions on other consoles, or the Xbox One games that stay exclusive to our console, that you will see that this additional money is actually the lowest price point we could possibly bring for you. Now, I know that in, in that regard, we may have some trouble convincing some of you at first, to which we say that's fine. This is going to be an extraordinary system that will have a long-lasting future. And if you need to take some time, perhaps you need to take some time. For that reason alone, the Xbox 360 will continue to give you online and offline enjoyment. Many, many games. And games that will offer you lots of experiences exclusive to that console as well that you can enjoy until you, f until you decide that it is time for you to experience the Xbox One. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for coming here today. Have a great E3. Simple as that, right? It's, uh, again, I, I, I bent a little bit. I, did, I worked on, off of no speculation whatsoever. It's only about statements that we actually know. Um, the couple of things that Microsoft did terribly was they didn't do interviews. They did a couple interviews with some industry trend people who just basically tore Don Matrick to pieces and got a million quotes that people love to throw around the internet now as internet memes on stupid pictures. But... I, you know, again, and, and again, maybe the whole diversion of the Xbox 360 and the whole concept that you wouldn't want somebody to grab it right off the bat might have been scary or foolish. But let's face it, this is E3. This is only talking to hardcore gamers. There's very little chance that any hardcore gamer is going to be pleased going with the Xbox 360 over the Xbox One. But it gives that acknowledgement that $500 is not some piss in the bucket you know what i mean it's not a small amount of money it's not a simple cost and no mr don matrick your 10 point whatever million dollars and i have no idea what his salary is but your millions of dollars you make every year might make the xbox one nothing to you but it's a lot to some people and then you just need to get in front of everything and uh and make sure that you do a press conference maybe to all the outlets or at least with one you know simple figure to clear up all this stuff that Don Matrick is kind of flushed down the toilet, you know? And again, Don Matrick's not a bad person. It's just that he, he doesn't have a very good grasp on how to speak to some of these individuals. And I really don't think his PR team did a really good job of keeping things uniform. You've seen time and time again with Sony, there's always a guy in the room when talking about the PS4. That's because they need to remain as consistent as they possibly can be because they know that if this breaks down or if something wavers in the least, it starts to build out for their console. Instead, they're just sitting back and letting Microsoft do it for them and they don't even have to respond. You know what I mean? It's like a, it's like a great game of poker. Um, but uh, so so now, like I said, that that I just think that's a better way you could have presented the Xbox One, and I do think it demonstrates. And and you you listeners tell me, maybe I'm full of shit, maybe I don't know what I'm talking about, but I really think strongly that the Xbox One 
is a great console that is coming out and it will be alongside the PS4 a great console. There is no denying, though, that that $100 price point, myself included, is going to draw people over to the PlayStation 4. But that in no way means that the Xbox One is, one, a failure. It will not be. And two, that we won't all possibly pick it up without a price drop um, in the next year or two. Because you never know. Titanfall could be the next big thing, and it could do things. You know, again, but that's where a lot of these promises and a lot of their distinction, the way they were going to diversify themselves against PCs and con- and the other console, the PS4, um, is kind of lost now that they're going to go with a disc-based system. But again, these are business choices, and sometimes if you don't have that early on push, these developers are not going to remain making games for your system. And then you've got the Nintendo Dilemma. So let's, let's let's jump into this and, and talk a little bit about some of the things people are saying about the Xbox One. I would also like to note that myself included, I'm probably one of the worst ones in this. I speculated so much with the Xbox One as to what this could all mean. And I think the reason why I did it and why a lot of people did it, aside from hits, because, you know, I mean, there's no advertising or... or, or, or ad revenue generated in anything I do. Any of the podcasts or any of the websites that I work for um, don't don't generate any ad revenue. So we, we definitely didn't care about hits. We just wanted to be more engaging and informing. But um, but there were places that, that wrote bullshit articles for that purpose alone. Um, but with the speculation, the reason people say this is because you start thinking about what this could all mean. What offloading things to an online server could do instead of like the streaming and Gaikai and on, on live stuff, which I mean it had a place, but I just don't think bandwidth is going to get there. Um, they're not tra- talking about a workload that heavy, from what I understand, with the Xbox One. And if they do, they do. But at least they can expand, or, you know, they can they can see how it bottlenecks and kind of adjust it appropriately. Um, furthermore, it's that whole concept of like consoles being like Steam, right? And uh, we have no idea if pricing would be lower. We have no idea if they could actually pull off the digital thing. From what I'm hearing about big box retailers, there's very little chance that someone like Walmart or Target or Best Buy or even GameStop, to a certain extent would be stupid enough to help them move all these consoles into households only to be undercut after the fact and go purely digital this whole concept of use not existing well you know they just had really poor messaging on it they they the the phrase is we have nothing to reveal at this time but we uh, and maybe but we promise to answer all your questions before the console releases because then you just you just don't have to have that conversation when all the other shit that's going on at e3 is going on you know i'm to 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 be honest, I'm, I'm shocked that, uh, that Microsoft even announced a price at all. And you know Sony had to once they realized, hey, we can make this console cheaper. So let's, let's just blow them out of the water. Sony did this uh, you know, in 1995 with Sega and the Saturn, and there is no reason not to do it again. They're both businesses. They're both trying to you know, work together. And again, many people talk about the, the concept of collusion, this idea that I had that Sony would jump on board and they would collude. Well, friends, there is legal collusion, and, and, and legal collusion... Um, Something I studied up on a little bit after it was brought up to me. Um, as long as they didn't independently agree to do this together, uh, or sorry, as long as they independently agreed to do this together without making any actual deals or having any actual discussions on the back end, I do believe it's legal. Um, and so, and under that regard, you know, they're they're just kind of ushering it in, you know, and and the and the publishers are definitely you know on board because publishers to this day it blows my mind they're one of the few businesses that don't want to take personal responsibility and more importantly financial responsibility for any of these flaws. They don't speak to the consumer at all. They they everything they've been doing lately, the online passes, all that stuff. This is all just making the manufacturer look bad. 
and making the, uh, the, the customer pay and the, the publishers try to generate the same amount of revenue. You know, it's hard for me to feel bad for Activision or EA when I see them, you know, churning massive triple digit, you know, uh, you know, a blockbuster hits and then they sit there and act like they don't have any money. <laughs> so anyway, um, but uh, but so so a lot of people have said you know uh, as, as ideas as to how the Xbox One could be benefited. People are like, well, you know, again, I talked about it a little bit. Why not just pull the Connect out of the mix? Well, because if they pull the Connect out of the mix, many have said it's the Sega 32X concept, and. I don't know if people really know what that means. I think people think that the 32X was a failure. I wouldn't really argue it was a failure from a commercial standpoint. Um, and I think people um, think it was just a stupid idea, which I also disbelieve. I don't think it was a stupid idea either. Um, the Sega 32X you know, is the add-on console. I'm sure most people listening to Gaming History 101 know about it. If not, feel free to search 32X on Gaming History 101. I've written plenty of uh, stuff about it, in- including an entire workup on the console itself, um, or-, or rather the add-on. But it was a supplemental add-on that was going to basically turn the Sega Genesis into a 32-bit system. It would go into the cartridge slot. Old Genesis games would work, which is great, right? Because backwards compatibility is always a big hot point, even though very few people use it. Um, uh, at least once the console is taken off. And uh, 32X games would work under it. It's cartridge-based, so it's much faster than CD, which was something that was going on at the time. Plus, Sega had this concept that they could you know, kind of co-develop this. The Sega 32X was $150. Many people already had a Genesis, especially if they're interested in the 32X. But if they get the Genesis as well, you're talking $250 for the total price. That's a 32-bit console with new games, cartridges, and everything. Additionally, they were going to release the Saturn at $400. Now, they knew even back then that $400, slash $150, depending on how you want to market it, very different in price. So let the new really hardcore stuff, your big RPGs, things like that, go on disc-based systems. They saw how not having a disc-based system harmed Nintendo in the long run. And I'll talk about that with the N64 in a second. And so they, their, their concept was there would be two consoles going side by side. Furthermore, they were working on development of the, the Neptune. The Neptune was going to be a console. There was a 32X and a Genesis all built into one for $200. Then when you've got the Saturn at $400 and the Neptune at $200, much easier case for whether you want to go for the disc-based experiences that, that allowed developers to do what they wanted there and the cartridge-based experience that allowed those type of developers to do what they wanted there. And again, at this time, there's a big rift going on in the industry, right around 93, 94, where it's the whole idea of... Are these polygons and 3D graphics really going to take it? Or are these sprite-based things that keep selling so well on, to a certain extent, the Genesis and definitely on the Super Nintendo, are these the way of the future? Which one is it going to be? And many companies, you know, made large, you know, options to try this stuff out. The 3DO tried it out, but its problem was its hardware was just way too expensive. But all CD media at that time was way too expensive. The Sega CD was somewhat considered a failure or, or behind its time. So the whole concept there was that, uh, you know, nobody really knew where it was going to go. Plus, and I should point this out, the 32X had an amazing pre-development lineup. In a different reality where the 32X remains a success, you would see Ratchet and Bolt, later known as Ratchet and Clank, one of the first Insomniac-developed platformers, come out as a 3D platformer on the Sega 32X. Additionally, you would see... um, uh, let's see, Rayman was going to be a, a sprite-based uh, platformer that was going to come out on the 32X. There was supposed to be um, Sonic. Uh, it wasn't Sonic Adventure. It was actually Sonic Extreme, but it started its life on the Sega 32X. There were a lot of games that were planned for that. Crash Bandicoot by Naughty Dog. Basically, the entire Sony pantheon of third-party support started its life on the Sega 32X. 
Additionally, it sold almost half a million copies of the console when it came out Christmas of 1993, I believe it was. Might have been 94. Um, And so, I mean, when you start talking about sales like that, and again, this is something that requires the Genesis to operate, yet they still moved that. And it was at 150 bucks, and it came out December 4th. This was 1994. It came out December 4th, 1994. That's just a tough trilogy to deal with. Um, but they still managed to have a decent success right out of the gate. They had some rushed ports. Star Wars Arcade was really good based off of the Sega Arcade, not the Atari 1983 Arcade. Um, you know, that, that worked out really well for them. Um, many people say that, uh, you know, Virtua Racing Deluxe was like the definitive version on there, but they had that really bad port of Doom. Not only did it have significantly stripped down levels, but it had just, a, just a, an abhorrent graphic scale in comparison to even the Super Nintendo port that had come out like a year earlier. But to a certain extent, the 32X could have achieved things. The reason why it was moved, though, was because at the end of the day, when you are developing for the 32X, it is purely dependent, and there's a lot of market concern and question there, on do you want to go with a CD-based console or a disc-based console? Which one's going to be more important? And you couldn't just seamlessly move to the console that was best for you. So when developers are starting early development on the 32X, which was going to remain in cartridges and things like that, and they start seeing the opportunity for disc-based media and things like that working much stronger in the future, plus, and, and, and this can't be stressed enough, Shortly after that time when Sony announces that their next console is going to be disc-based, their first console is going to be disc-based, and it will be the only console on the block. And you see Nintendo, the Ultra 64 was widely regarded to most likely go to discs. Sony had, or Nintendo had been toying with that concept for a couple of generations now. Um, the idea that CD was here to stay seemed pretty strong. Furthermore, that summer, you would see the Saturn come out, uh, get announced at $400, the PlayStation at 300 and suddenly the 32X is not as good a value as people thought it was. But I really believe that the strongest part of the 32X was that it was diversified. You could not develop assuming people had it, you know, and they looked like Genesis carts and they were marketed like Genesis carts and... Um, you know, it, again, had the Genesis come out and required the 32X or it had been part of it, or had the 32X come out as its own console, it may have had some more strength. But because it's a you have to guess whether or not the person has it, you're already diversifying your audience, and that's a heavy risk. Same thing with the Kinect. Microsoft tried that already. It didn't work. The Kinect sold 10 million units, sure, but it was kind of a DOA console in concept, on the 360, did okay. Now that you've got it in the box, regardless of how well it works, regardless of what it does, every developer knows they can develop for it. And that's why people call it the 32X dilemma. They know it's there. Same thing with the hard drive. The Xbox 360 this generation was plagued by the fact it didn't have a hard drive. It was very dangerous to release a game that required the hard drive because you know for a fact that moms aren't going to notice that on the box. You know your customer support's going to have to tackle that stuff. And so that's why they're doing it. They're doing it even if it costs them $100 more. They're doing it even though they're probably taking a massive bath on the hardware cost. I'm sure those consoles probably cost six, seven, dollars $800 to make. But they're doing it because they need the Kinect in the box, because they need developers to make it for it. And it's not really relevant right now whether or not you think you need it, because we didn't think we needed anything that we had to offer. And look what happened there. I know it pisses people off, but the reality is, is that 
if the Xbox One picks up with the mainstream and is another Wii phenomenon, Microsoft is probably concerned about the fact that the hardcore gamer is not on board, but you're just not a large we are just not a large enough audience to be that upset if we're moving fifty, a hundred million units. It's just the reality. Um you know, and and again, uh, Sony, I could go into the PS4 as well, but the, the problem is, is that its messaging is pretty strong. It just doesn't need to be explained. Sony is really handling the PR campaign of all this. You know, I mean, and the blatant fact that they really have very little coming out, and some of their most, you know, uh, strongest titles like, um, you know, uh, what is it, The Order 1888 or whatever, nobody knows anything about it. I don't even think it's a launch game. It's probably not. It's just a trailer. And they've embargoed a lot of the information about what the game is like if, until a later date. It's just weird. you know. So Sony's walking into it with not a very strong lineup, but people are like, hey, <laughs> the games I really want are both going to be in the bo- uh, you know, both going to be on both boxes. I'll pick this one because it's cheaper. Take that risk later on when the Xbox One shows off you know, some killer apps that you need to switch over to. Um, so let's talk about a couple of consoles that were dead in the water, um, just to wrap this up. And this is going to be a little bit of a shorter show, but I think that's pretty good because when you're just listening to one guy, you want to hear me wax off philosophically for too long before you get tired. Um, so let's talk about, uh, you know, uh, let's, let's, let's talk first about a couple of consoles that, uh, uh, that had some interesting, uh, uh, issues over the years and, and why they were harmed. The first one and most notably is probably the Atari 5200. Now, the Atari 5200 did a lot of ports of Atari 2600 games with improved graphics. I would say that's pretty rough because people don't want to rebuy their games. You know, same thing with the 32X. There were a lot of great ports of games, NBA Jam Tournament Edition. Some say Mortal Kombat 2, the greatest port is on the 32X. I tend to disagree with that, but that doesn't change the fact that it was a very enticing, especially back in those days when I was a young kid reading EGM in 1994, that was a very enticing game to get for my 32X. And I did get it for my 32X. I did tell myself it was significantly better than the Genesis or the Super Nintendo version. Um, I, I was thinking about doing a, a program coming up, so you guys can expect this on a retro game night coming up, where I literally play a bunch of different ports of these games because I have started collecting them, um, you know, across different consoles because I am really curious how how different and diverse they are. Um, but uh, yeah, so so the fifty two hundred, the fifty two hundred's blaring omission though was this massive library of twenty six hundred games. The Atari twenty six hundred was the console. They, they didn't even really have much competition, um, especially when it came out. And the 5200 comes out, and it's not backwards compatible. Why wouldn't it be backwards compatible? Atari, you'd think, would know all about this stuff and would have done that so that you've got a full library so that you don't have to convince consumers to buy this stuff all over again, especially when you're re-releasing stuff. So I guess I guess it's it's kind of that, that dilemma, right? That double-edged sword, because they were doing a lot of enhanced ports of the 2600. So if you give people the whole catalog, then they can't go back and play that version. But at the same time, if you restrict it from them, you leave yourself open for competition. And that's exactly what happened. Um, the Supreme Court ruled when, uh, I believe Intellivision was the first to do this, um, when the Intellivision 2600 add-on, which was nothing more than a 2600 in a box that hooked up to your Intellivision and used the Intellivision video out and the Intellivision power in to power it. At its core, though, it was just a 2600 in a box. And, of course, Atari sued them for it and tried to get their money back. Well, it was made. Uh, the Atari 2600 was made off of off-the-shelf parts. So the Supreme Court said, no, you have nothing that is patented. There is nothing wrong with that. And that is why the Intellivision got around or was able to best that with an OS. Yeah, it had a patented OS. Now you can't make the Intellivision because the OS was so, was so like 
uh, it did some stuff. It was it was innovative enough or utilized the console enough that without that OS, and television games really couldn't be emulated. So that's how they got around it. Same thing happened with the ColecoVision. ColecoVision had an Atari add-on as well. And so people were playing all these Atari games. They're ignoring the 5200 and they're playing all these Atari games on the Intellivision and the ColecoVision because they could. And because the patents prevented Atari from doing the same thing back at these other manufacturers. Very smart move. But it taught us one thing about backwards compatibility. That especially early on, or especially if you've got just a powerhouse of a console, there might be an interest and, and again, Atari had to set this precedent so that other people could plan for it. Um, there might be an interest in making everything backwards compatible. Now, as we've seen today, many people aren't really falling into that. And backwards compatibility is becoming less important than it ever was. But again, gaming history, there's a lot more uh, history there now. Retro consoles are not so hard to find. And Nintendo is strongly holding on to its roots of backwards compatibility. So, you know, and again, this all predates emulation. So that that has a little part of it too. Um, but uh, but yeah, so if you ever wonder how the 2600 was able to be um, completely copied, uh, it's, it's blatantly because it didn't have anything patented. And that's why operating systems uh, became all the rage. Uh, Nintendo's way of doing it instead of an operating system was a lockout chip. Uh, that lockout chip, which Atari, again, <laughs> went nuts trying to find, and eventually broke the law to get it, um, you know, had, had a massive part to it. Uh, the next one is the TurboGrafx-16. So why didn't the TurboGrafx take off, right? Because you hear TurboGrafx enthusiasts and PC Engine people, and myself included. It's a fabulous system. It's a 16-bit graphics processor working on an 8-bit system. So it's kind of a Nintendo with really pretty graphics. And, um, and it had these little credit card games, you know? And, I mean, the games were really good. There were a lot of really rock-solid games on that. Problem is, most of them didn't come to America. Why? Well, for some reason, NEC, who brought the console over here, um, decided that... Uh, uh, that they were going to NEC working in design with Hudson. Hudson's basically the company that's behind, um, you know, the TurboGrafx-16. Uh, you know, before this, they they made pretty notably the uh, 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 Hudson's Adventure Island or, or the original Wonder Boy. Um, those are just palette swaps of the same game. Um, that was their their big thing. But they, Hudson had a lot of good games. Uh, Bomberman was another massive one for Hudson. Um, so they make this console and they bring it out. Well, for one reason or another, it's probably because Hudson had to fork over all the money to get this thing manufactured in uh, America. Um, Hudson only brings the Hudson games over. They don't bring the third-party games over. Uh, there is probably a slight part of that that has to deal with Nintendo's kind of lockout on the, the generation. The Sega Master System slash Mark III uh, dealt with that a lot as well. Um, but, uh, but basically, Hudson only brought over its own games, which makes for a decent um, but restrictive library. And so this is one of those weird cases where not importing enough, not regionalizing enough games, really kind of killed that system dead in the water. The other side of it, though, is, let's face it, Sega and Nintendo had much stronger libraries, and when they went toe-to-toe, Genesis versus Super Nintendo, and publishers weren't buying this whole, if you make a game on Nintendo's consoles, you can't make it anywhere else bullshit, and uh, Howard Lincoln wasn't able to kind of pull that kind of stuff with the Super Nintendo 16-bit generation, um, you know, once once you know, <laughs> you started getting third party companies and and massive libraries and stuff like that. Yeah, NEC didn't have a chance. But again, it was a very Japanese centric thing, and I think this is where a lot of companies have learned nowadays to regionalize their stuff. That's why there is a Sony of America, Sony of Europe, Sony of Japan. While there may be one massive puppet master, you have to understand that these still have localized areas. Nintendo even does it. Nintendo's a very Japanese company. They're very traditional. I think Jap- Japan can still dictate a lot of what Nintendo does in America, but let's not change the fact that there is an NOA, Nintendo of America, and it is very strong, and it does many things, 
even if Nintendo of Japan doesn't think they're important or viable. It does exist, and, and everyone's kind of got that. Maybe that's the biggest problem that Microsoft has right now, breaking into other markets. Uh, they definitely have a strong European branch, but um, you know, uh, they, they really need to see what they can do about Asia. You know, and, uh, and, and maybe a Microsoft of Japan would be a good idea. I don't think they've got one, but who knows. Um, next up is the 3DO. So people always wonder why the 3DO was bad, because it was a 32-bit system. And it, and, and it was $700, so that is its detriment. That is its downfall, just ask Sony. But the reason for that was because there was no good way to bring that console price down, and that's because of a test that was made a long time ago. Again, it's, it's good in theory, but uh, when, when you see it in practice, it doesn't work out so well, was the fact that the, 32, or the, the 3DO, 32-bit processor, had a two-time speed CD-ROM drive. That's significant because everything else on the market had a one-time speed. Even the Neo Geo CD and various other things. So this thing could load games faster. And let's face it, CD games load slow, especially first-generation CD games. So this thing works, and I've seen it in practice. This thing works fast. It goes on par with the Jaguar, which had many of the same games ported over to it, but it used cartridges, so it could move things faster. It's impressive that 3DO keeps up with the Jaguar. It's impressive that a console that has CD-based media keeps up with cartridge-based media. So that's cool. It also does 3D graphics surprisingly well. It handles 3D graphics in ways that in many cases are better than the PlayStation. The PlayStation is like two or three years newer than it, and it still does okay. In fact, from my knowledge, the PlayStation is still a one-time CD-ROM drive. So there you go. But when you start putting these top-shelf parts and these really impressive architectures and, and, and things like that in there, there is, there is always the, the caveat, the flaw. And the, uh, the last part was the 3DO company, Trip Hawkins, previously of Electronic Arts, decides to make the 3DO company and makes the specs for the 3DO. Well, the 3DO is not going to be manufactured by 3DO. I know that sounds weird. But the console of the 3DO is not going to be manufactured by the 3DO company. No, they're going to let... Uh, basically other people license it out and release it. Other companies that are made for consumer electronics better. And uh, that's why we see the Panasonic 3DO, the Gold Star 3DO. Um, there's a Sanyo 3DO in Japan. Let these companies make this stuff, you know? Well, the problem is, is that because it's all off-the-shelf parts and they have to manufacture this stuff, they have to charge a price where they're going to make a profit off of it. Same thing goes for your DVD player and your and your Blu-ray player, and, and your television. They have to make a profit. Well, in order to make a profit, the cheapest price they could charge for the damn thing was 650 or 700 bucks. It's huge. Now, what, how, does, how does that restrict itself today? What, what, what other options do they have if the 3DO company were to make it out? Well, see, the thing is, when the 3DO company, and that's how the 3DO makes its, its money, they charge a licensing fee to anyone who wants to make a 3DO game. So when Naughty Dog wants to make Way of the Warrior, every time Way of the Warrior gets sold, Naughty Dog gets their two bits the you know the place that sold it gets their profit and then 3do gets a licensing fee probably five ten bucks or something so they make five ten bucks off of every game sold and then when you start looking at every game the console can sell in its lifetime that's a very profitable endeavor well now let's uh let's take it when when you're not the manufacturer as well and this is why traditionally we'll see from that point on and and you know before and after that the companies will remain manufacturers if they're licensing it out it's because the 3do didn't have to cost that much they could take a loss on it like they do many times with many other forms of manufacturing. They sell the 3DO for $500, $400. They take a, let's say it costs $600 to make. Because if you're selling it for $650, it realistically probably costs about that much to make. It probably costs between $600 and $700 to make. 
But let's say you're, uh, I would say 6650 actually. So let's stick with the 600 You sell it for $400. You take a $200 loss. But if it catches on and it sells very well, you can make that back, assuming everybody buys, what, 20 games at 10 bucks a game? Well, 20 games is not really hard to fathom. Many people had more than 20 games. Plus, the games are cheaper. They're on CDs, so they're only 40 bucks. I mean, you're going up against Nintendo, Super Nintendo here, where some of its cartridges late in its cycle. You know, you've got uh, Final Fantasy three sitting on the you know on the shelves, along with Earthbound and and uh, Chrono Trigger, all sitting there at like a hundred bucks, seventy bucks, or something like that. Your game's forty bucks. It's the same damn game. Yeah, well, not literally the same game, but in some cases it was. Why not? You've got PC games. People don't want to buy a high-end PC. Here you go. You're good to go. So they could take that loss and sell the console lower. Well, that's what they do now. And I think that's the key to success. So that's how the 3DO kind of uh, petered out before it ever got started. But it was an impressive system for what it was. It's just there were other ways to get these these games. And even now, there's a large... Uh, most of the games are not um, exclusive to the console. And so that's the hard part. Is that going back and playing an old PC game in DOSBox or something is, first of all, it's a Bannerware, so it's usually cheap or free. And uh, second of all, it plays it just as well as the 3DO. But it's an interesting console through and through. And last but not least, and I'll conclude my show uh, tonight with uh, the two powerhouses, the N64 and the Dreamcast. So what were their flaws, right? Because neither one was really a failure. The Dreamcast petered out way before it needed to. But they were both successful systems, at least to a certain extent. And they definitely both have libraries that are well worth playing. The N64 could have been a lot more pivotal, though, right? You know, the Super Nintendo versus the N64? Big gap. Why? Lack of third parties. There were many third parties that were making stuff for the N64. The reason for that is because they went with cartridges still instead of CDs. Somehow Nintendo just did not want to break into CDs. And I think a lot of people thought they would. Well, as a result, the third-party development was halted significantly on various games. Um, Square, and then later Enix, and Square Enix as as a combo, took away the Final Fantasy series. Enix had the Dragon Warrior, Dragon Quest series. They took that away. That, that all moved to the PlayStation. And that was huge. Pivotal. Because RPGs, long, sprite-based RPGs, lived on Super Nintendo. Now, they all migrated over to the PlayStation. Furthermore, companies like Capcom, Konami, things like that, they couldn't make Resident Evil on a cartridge that was 64 megabits. It was, less, it was like 55 megabytes. They couldn't do it. They eventually did it, but it was crazy and had a bunch of uh, compromises made. Uh, same thing goes with uh, with Konami. They, they couldn't make Symphony of the Night. Symphony of the Night was probably supposed to be on the N64. Never even found any proof of that. But it looks like it very much should have been. Um, and we know that the Saturn version was a port of the PlayStation version, which is weird too, right? Why go on the PlayStation? The PlayStation was made for 3D graphics. This is a 2D sprite-based game. Why didn't it work very well on the Saturn? Probably because it wasn't optimized very well because it was a clumsy port. Anyway, can you imagine how different that would be if Symphony of the Night was an N64 game? It's crazy. But they, they just they, they were hoping it would be CD-based, and it wasn't. And so I think that's a hard part about the third-party stuff. And I think to that day, Nintendo refused to compromise through and through with their third parties. And that's why to this moment, they are still suffering in the third-party space. And last but not least, the Dreamcast. If ever something that kind of parallels what Microsoft was trying to do and... Uh, and, and Microsoft's uh, flip, it's 180 back to uh, a traditional uh, game manufacturer perspective. It is the Sega Dreamcast. That thing was tailor-made for the future. It had a CD, or it, it, was, a, it was a system that didn't use CDs. It used GD-ROMs, 
gigs of space. So it was slightly bigger, could make for bigger games. It ran Windows CE, which means it had an architecture for that of smartphones and various other programs and games that were being designed on the PC. So that made it easier to port things over there. Also made the operating system much smoother. It had a web browser. It had a web browser that came in the box, a modem that was attached, so any developer could develop for that modem. It could get online, and it had a keyboard and a mouse attachment if you really wanted it. Hell, for a long time, games like Half-Life, which was in develop, Half-Life was going to be a port on the Dreamcast. There are still that port floating around today that you can play if you have the right kind of Dreamcast. You can just burn it onto a disc and go. It was going to have keyboard and mouse support. I think the same was going to be true for Quake 3 Arena. Can you imagine that? PC gamers playing on consoles. How fucking crazy is that? You know? They were looking forward to the future. They were going to have online integration. PC games. All this stuff all set up. Plus, Sega's massive library. And let's also not forget, it was all based off of AM2 architecture, which was, I believe it was AM2, which was Sega's uh, arcade architecture. So it kind of did everything, right? Not only are they going to be a classic console with their own classic console games, much like we saw with the Saturn and the Genesis before it, slash Mega Drive, depending on what country you're from. The Dreamcast is now going to come out, and it's going to play those console games. It's going to play PC games. We saw tons of PC ports. Tons of them. Half-Life. Quake. Uh, I believe Duke Nukem was on there. but it could be wrong about that. And we've seen a lot of people port those over after the fact now. Like, the, the, the underground dev community of the Dreamcast is fascinating to me. Not only that, it's going to have a ton of arcade ports. And it did. It really did. Uh, House of the Dead came out. House of the Dead 2, with the original on the disc, came out. It was amazing. House of the Dead 3, nah, that went to the Xbox. But there were a lot of light gun shooters on there that were mostly what Sega was manufacturing at the time for its arcades. But uh, you, you just saw a lot of arcade ports and things like that. The Dreamcast really was set to go. It only even had Capcom in its pocket, releasing Code Veronica, which we later found out that were it not for an exclusivity deal with Sony, Code Veronica is truly and would have been Resident Evil 3, not the side story Resident Evil Nemesis. But it, it wasn't. But it doesn't change the fact that that is still what it was. And the Dreamcast just had a lot of things going for it. But, but people weren't ready. People weren't ready for it. It didn't have, you know, you've got the PlayStation 2 right around the corner. It's hitting guns a-blazing. We have no idea what the Dolphin's going to do, but it got announced as well. And um, early launch figures for the Dreamcast. It was one of the fastest-selling consoles of all time. But for one reason or another, a lot of the crazy things they were trying to do just didn't catch on as well or didn't move as, as smoothly. Hell, I think there's even a Dreamcast thing where you can hook up a Neo Geo Pocket. They're making deals with SNK on a portable console. It's crazy. But through and through, as we saw, um, many people say this, the Dreamcast is kind of ahead of its time. But Sega never backed down. It had a VGA box, too. I forgot about that. It could display in 640 by 480 if you had the right output, and I do. But what we see through and through, uh, time and time again with these consoles and, and what they did, is that uh, Sega forced it. Sega forced it, and they wouldn't hear anything else. And when they did that, consumers worked with their wallets. Dreamcast wasn't backwards compatible. The PlayStation 2 was. PlayStation 2 used DVD format. It was going to be a DVD player. The Dreamcast was not. Online wasn't that big a deal yet. It would later become Fantasy Star Online was huge on the Dreamcast. But it just wasn't there yet. And because they just didn't have enough going for them, they didn't have enough products coming out, and they weren't turning a big enough profit, it petered out. I think Microsoft is worried to a certain extent that that's going to happen here with the Xbox One if they don't do something quick. Now, this back-end architecture 
still exists. Microsoft can still do it. They just can't do it at this time, and it's not going to come right out of the gate. And remember, there is probably very little chance still, and I know people still want to tinfoil hat me on this, but there's very little chance that Sony, or that's, yeah, Sony hasn't put that stuff, capabilities in the back end and in the box, only to lay dormant right now until eventually being able to integrate it on the PS4. But I mean, as we've seen with all this stuff, time will tell. But at the end of the day, here's what I want to take from this. And, and just from everything overall with, with the end of this first test of Gaming History X. And I want, to, I want you to, to, to let me know what you think. And, and I would say the next time I do this, it won't be as much of a historical re- uh, retrospective. It'll be more us, me and a couple of guests, talking specifically about these big issues, hitting them head on. And hopefully, we can have audience participation before, during, and after the show. So I just want to hear what you guys have to say about this particular episode. Um, but I really think, I truly believe... That regardless of all this stuff, that these consoles are going to come out, and Xbox One owners are going to be very pleased with what they get. PlayStation 4 owners are going to be very pleased with what they get. And I'm really curious to see how this all pans out. But one thing is for sure, I don't think that anyone's going to look back at this little debacle and make it as any more than the amusing thing we saw in 1995 at E3 as the... Sega Saturn's coming out right now for 400 bucks, and then Sony comes out and they're like, Sony PlayStation, two ninety nine ninety nine. I just think it's going to be a little blink, and we're going to be talking about it on a Gaming History 101 10 years from now, where I'm like, ha, 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 yeah, and I remember everybody was like, the Xbox One's dead in the water, it's never going to do anything, da 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 and then look what happened. But who knows? I guess time will tell. But one thing I can definitely tell you is that uh, the, the, the new generation's coming, and it's going to be fascinating. And I, for one, wish I had the money to get both consoles at launch, but I don't. So I'm going to be leaning to the PS4 at the beginning, which many of you are. But if you're an Xbox One owner, just realize that the biggest mistake the, the, the manufacturer of your console made was in how they delivered a message and how they sold what you truly see in the box that you're siding with, and they didn't show that value. They, it's there. It's very clear. But they didn't show it. And they let a guy an executive who for better or for worse, just didn't know the right way to speak to hardcore gamers and enthusiast press to help sell this console. Now, naturally some of this stuff is speculation or no, not speculation is opinion. So you might not agree with me. That's fine. I'd like to hear your feedback. Anyway, without further ado, I'm going to call this uh, episode of gaming history X to a close. Let me know what you think. Go to GamingHistory101.com forward slash contact. Or you can just go to GamingHistory101. There's a contact link there. Plus, you can see lots of other fun stuff we do. Uh, We are available every Sunday night on all games after Knuckleballer Radio at 11 p.m. Eastern. So come join us. Get in the live chat. It's kind of fun. We wax nostalgic. Maybe Derek jumps on from time to time because uh, he has a lot of fun with this. And man has an impressive amount of knowledge. I think that's the hardest part about this whole thing is that the history of video games, I'm trying to put an academic spin on it. But let's face it, it's all entertainment and so it's very hard to see this stuff because it's all documented elsewhere in publications that no longer exist you know in a country i didn't live in but with your help and we've seen this time and time again um you know your emails and things like that we can we can kind of just get a better picture of it and just just have fun with it because that's what this is really about is just having fun but uh anyway so check us out there um and uh and for all of those of you out there thank you tc i'm sure you're there thank you derek thank you chatters thank you everybody at all games um also 
I do a video show now. I think we're having some fun with it. I'd love to hear your feedback is what you'd like to see. Um, I've got a decent amount of shows lined up, but let's keep going, and I will pick more users and things like that. You can hit me up on Twitter at SpidersVenom. That's S-P-Y-D-E-R-S-V-E-N-O-M. Or, of course, on Gaming History 101 through the contact link. Um, but it's called Retro Game Night. And there I usually play a game I've never played for the first time, and I usually play it for about 20, 30 minutes and show it off. And then I do a feature on a game that somebody um, out of my audience, you listeners, you readers, uh, want me to show off. And so most recently, I did Street Fighter the game, uh, the movie The Game, which was uh, given by a user useless bug. Uh, it was it was a very amusing thing, and it's interesting. You can kind of see me kind of you know get pissed off at it, and uh, you can you can kind of see uh, if I can meet the challenge that useless bug was curious if I could do, which is complete the game. Um, and uh, next week, um, I'm going to be doing a Joe and Mac, also known as Joe and Mac Caveman Ninjas, um, thanks to user uh, Poopfoot1980. I believe his name is Luke, but uh, anyway. So uh, check that out. Uh, I record those every Friday night and then upload them as quickly as possible when I don't pass out. Um, uh, Saturday, uh, Late Friday night, and then I do a post on Saturday morning uh, on Gaming History 101. So without further ado, we're going to call this to a close. Next week, we will be back with trees, and we're going to be talking about something I don't know quite what yet and then hopefully uh in the next week or two or within the next month i hope to have the level 40 or the 42 level one guys on um to uh, talk sonic which i know uh many people uh they're they're from scotland but many people over in that area of europe um very fascinated with and 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 love sonic and i have a personal you know affinity towards him because uh, i was a sega fanboy through and through until about uh, the early 2000s so anyway um so without further ado i'm going to call this to a close everybody have a good night and have fun gaming ladies and gentlemen introducing xbox one tv experience tv tv and movies tv xbox watch tv 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 TV, TV, watch TV, 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 TV remote, TV experience, TV, 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 sports TV, 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 anybody? TV, 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 Xbox, go home. TV, 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 TV. Sports, 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 television, television, TV, television. Television, 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 TV, TV, TV. Xbox is about to become the next water cooler. Sports, television, television, television. I'm thrilled to announce a live action Halo television series. Television, TV, sports, sports, sports. Television, TV, 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 TV. For Call of Duty, Call of Duty, Call of Duty, Call of Duty, an entirely new Call of Duty for the next generation. Call of Duty, 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 Call of Duty. One of the fascinating new additions to your squad is a dog. This is someone you care about. Call of Duty, 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 Call of Duty. All of the new story element. Call of Duty, 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 Call of Duty. Our new dog model is taken from high resolution scans of an actual SEAL Team service dog. Call of Duty, Call of Duty, Call of Duty. Xbox, go home.